the Children's Church. All right. Good morning, everybody. Morning. morning. So Pete left me with a large passage to deal with. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, and so I want to go ahead and, and get, us, get us rolling because I'm sure everybody wants to eat lunch at some point today. Uh, go ahead and go to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, we're going to be starting in verse 13 in just one second. And uh, we're going to go all the way to verse 42. So Acts 13, verses 13 through 42. And I, I just I wanted to start off the message this morning because I wanted to share something I found this week that I just thought was fascinating. Um, this, you guys know I'm a librarian, so I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to things that are found in archives and stuff like that. And so recently, in the past about month or so, a letter was discovered at the Ronald Reagan Library uh, in, in an old document. They, they pulled out this letter and a researcher found it, and it was a letter from Ronald Reagan to his father-in-law. Now, it was a handwritten letter, and it was on White House stationery. So he wrote it while he was in office. He, he took the time to sit down and write it. Now, his father-in-law was an atheist, and his father-in-law was on his deathbed. And so Ronald Reagan takes out uh, this, this paper to write this letter to his father-in-law, who's an atheist, on his deathbed. All right? I wanted to share with you some of what he said, just really quickly. His name was Loyal. He said, Dear Loyal, this is 1982. Dear Loyal, I hope you will forgive me for this, but I've been wanting to write you ever since we talked on the phone. I'm aware of the strain you're under, and I believe with all my heart there is help for that. And then I'm going to skip down. There's a line in the Bible, wherever two or more gathered in my name, there will I be also. Loyal, I know of your feeling, your doubt, but could I just impose on you a little longer? Uh, some 700 years before the birth of Christ, the ancient Jewish prophets predicted the coming of a Messiah. They said he would be born in a lowly place, would proclaim himself the Son of God, and would be put to death for saying that. All in all, there were a total of 123 specific prophecies about his life, all of which came true. Crucifixion was unknown in those times, yet it was foretold that he would be nailed to a cross of wood. And one of the predictions was that he would be born a virgin. Now, I know that is probably the hardest for you as a doctor to accept. The only answer that can be given is this. It was a miracle. But, Loyal, I don't find that as, a great, as great of a miracle as the actual history of his life. Either he was who he said he was, or he was the greatest faker and charlatan who ever lived. But would a liar and a faker suffer the death he did when all he had to do was to save, him, to save himself was admit he had been lying? The miracle is that a young man of 30 years without credentials as a scholar or priest began preaching on street corners. He owned nothing but the clothes on his back, and he didn't travel beyond a circle less than 100 miles across. He did this for only three years and then was executed as a common criminal. But for 2,000 years, he has had more impact on the world than all the teachers, scientists, emperors, generals, and admirals who ever lived, all put together. The Apostle John said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We have been promised that all we have to do is ask God in Jesus' name to help when we have done all we can, when we've come to the end of our strength and abilities, and we'll have that help. We only have to trust and have faith in his infinite goodness and mercy. Loyal, you and Edith have known a great love, more than many have ever been permitted to know. 
That love will not end with the, with the end of this life. We've been promised this is only a part of life that is, great, that is a greater life, a greater glory that awaits us. It awaits, you to get, uh, it awaits you together one day, and all that is required that you believe and tell God you put yourself in his hands. Love, Ronnie. A sitting U.S. president is writing a letter from the White House on White House paper to his father-in-law, who's an atheist, pleading with him to come to know Jesus. That's exactly the kind of plea that we see in Acts chapter 13. Paul stands before this synagogue in this crazy town way out in the middle of nowhere, uh, at least way out in the middle of nowhere in relation to Jerusalem, uh, called Pisidian Antioch. And so that's where we find the story this morning, a similar type of plea. Uh, Let me pray before we get into the text. Lord, thank you for who you are. I pray this morning against the temptation to think of this as just uh, business as usual. Anytime we open up the Word of God, anytime we open up your Word, Lord, it is not business as usual. You are speaking to us. I pray this morning that we would take that seriously, help us to focus, and all of the other things that come uh, during our week that just uh, in some ways are distractions, Lord. I, I pray that you would remove those things from our mind, help us to focus on you right now for the next 30, 40 minutes. Help us to focus on what you would have for us, the precedent set for us by our spiritual fathers, Paul and Barnabas. Help us to preach and teach and evangelize like they did. I pray against all the other distractions that we may have. Uh, Help us to learn this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, what we see in the first few verses here as we focus in If I could summarize it this way, it took a whole lot of work to get to the point where Paul and Barnabas could preach in this town, all right? A whole lot of work. A lot more work than what we just uh, see when we just read it at a glance. Let me read these verses. Then Paul and his companions put out to sea from, from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Moving on from Perga, they arrived and at Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the leaders of the synagogue sent them a message saying, Brothers, if you have any message of exhortation for the people, speak it. So Paul stood up, gestured with his hand, and said, All right, so the gospel is moving forward. Throughout the book of Acts, we see it as Luke talks about at the beginning. It's going to go forth to the other ends of the earth. And and truly, by the end of the book, as far as the known world is concerned, the gospel had gone forth to the other ends of of the world. And so we see in this part of the story, Paul and Barnabas are sailing from this place uh, called Paphos to Perga. They're not going to preach in Perga, though they'll preach on the way back in that particular town. And then they're going to walk to Pisidian Antioch. Um, Again, this is a point. This is just one point of the story of the gospel going out to all the world. But but I want to point something out that may seem very obvious at first, but it's, it's really important. The way that the gospel goes out is specifically said to be through preaching. You say, well, yeah, that makes sense, preaching. No, no, no. In today's church, I'm telling you, there are many churches that would have us get rid of preaching as part of, this, of the central 
uh, element of a church service. They would much rather do it in some other way, and, and maybe their, their messages would be completely different. I'll say, I'll say like this. I've, I've actually spent time in churches where maybe they even have something called a sermon, but they're not preaching the Word of God. And it's not necessarily what they're saying is incorrect or wrong, but the central element of the service is not opening this up and trying to figure out what this says. Do you see the difference? So often sermons that you watch on TV or maybe you go to other churches, so often sermons are, are really and truly more about humanistic psychology or some, some sort of, you know, uh, be, be better, uh, uh, some sort of language about self-help or something like that. No, 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 no. At the end of the day, the church has always been about preaching God's revelation, from the time of Jesus to the time of Paul to the time of the early church all the way down through the ages, church has always centered around doing exactly what I'm doing this morning and opening up God's word, looking at God's revealed will and determining how that impacts us and how we should then act. Preaching is central to all that the church does and it must continue to be the, to be the case. We... Um, we, we, we have to realize that preaching must stand first and foremost um, at, at the Word of God, preaching the gospel. It's exactly, by the way, why when we go to Africa, we don't bring with us a bunch of money. Have you all noticed that? Peter's talked about this quite a bit. When we go to Africa, we don't come with materialistic things. They may want computers and, and clothes and things like this, um, but we don't come with that. We come with the gospel. Now, certainly, it is the case that Christians care about human suffering. We care about people that hunger and thirst for physical food, and we care about people that have you know, medical problems and so forth, and Christians have to be engaged in that. We have to care about medical missions. That's fantastic. Jesus himself fed the 5,000s before he preached. That, that certainly happened. Uh, it, it's certainly the case that we care about human suffering on that level. But let me tell you all something. Are you all ready for this? Think about this. The greatest form of human suffering is not physical thirst and hunger and physical pain. The greatest form of human suffering is eternal damnation. We care about human suffering, and precisely because we care about that, we care about getting to the, the real disease that is sin that leads to eternal death, not just treating the symptoms of physical suffering in the here and now. We, we, we don't just treat the symptoms. We want to get at the disease. That's why we preach. We, we, we care about human suffering, and that is exactly why we preach. For my um, millennial friends, I mean, we care about social justice, but we care first and foremost about the justice of God because everything else flows from that. Everything else flows from that. We cannot just treat the symptoms. We have to work on the disease in the midst of this. There's another detail that you've really got to pick up here that Luke probably assumes that his readers understand, but we, we're not familiar with the geography of the time, so it's hard to understand this. He, he says that they sailed from Pamphos to Perga, right? 200 miles is how far that is. At, 
in the ocean, in a boat back then. This ain't a yacht. This is kind of a dangerous track in the boats back then. 200 miles, all right? From um, Perga to Pisidian Antioch, it's 100 miles of walking. By the way, in the mountains, not the Blue Ridge Mountains, we're talking Rocky Mountains. This is way above sea level. This is very tough, arduous um, journey. This is you know, th- avoiding thieves and robbers and bandits that have, you know, we know from the history books that these mountains have all these kinds of crazy, uh, treacherous things. They have to, to cross a number of rivers. I mean, this is a truly epic, adventurous journey that is riddled with danger in many respects. And so they, they go through all this, and then, by the way, Paul probably has malaria at this point. We find out in Scripture in another place. Um, so Paul's got malaria. They're trekking over rivers. They're walking through these giant mountains. They've gone through 200 miles at sea, all to show up at this synagogue, and they walk, they walk in on the Sabbath, sit down, and as would have been custom, the leaders there, the Jewish leaders would have said, hey, you know, Paul, you're, you, were, you studied under Gamaliel. You've kind of got a famous name. Do you have anything to say? Well, yeah. They've gone through this epic journey to get there, and now Paul stands up and has exactly the thing to say. It's incredible how God has opened that door. But make no mistake, what they did to get here is just unbelievable. Just to get here to preach this sermon. Unbelievable. One more detail I just want to point out in um, these few verses that you, you probably didn't even think anything about it when I read it a second ago. Verse 13 says, Paul and his companions. Why is that important? Every other instance Paul has been listed in the book of Acts up until this point, uh, it's always been Barnabas and Paul. And now it switches to Paul and his companions. Barnabas isn't even, isn't even listed. The, the reason that this is important is you know, Barnabas is the older one in the faith. He's much older than Paul. He's been a Christian for much longer than Paul. He's probably the, the more experienced preacher compared to Paul. And, and so isn't it interesting that Luke recognizes that Barnabas sort of steps aside that in this instance, because Paul is going to have the opportunity, he sort of steps aside and lets Paul take the, the limelight. You know, at the end of the day, the greatest leaders are the ones who are willing to do what's best for the kingdom. Not what's best for themselves, not what's best for their platform, not what's best for, you know, Barnabas could have said, well, I I journeyed all this way, I want to preach. I'm the older one, I'm calling rank. He didn't do that. They allow Paul to step up and do this thing because that was what was best for the kingdom in that point. I think that's just a fantastic uh, thought and, and even when you look at Acts chapter 15, Luke goes back to re- referring to Barnabas first. So it's not like this happens every time, but Paul is allowed to step up and do this uh, at this point. So what we get in the next few verses, and by few I mean a lot of verses, um, we get Paul's first and longest recorded sermon. Isn't that cool? It's not the first sermon that Paul ever preached, but it's the first one we have recorded, and it's the longest one we have recorded. So I'm going to read this here, verses 16 through 41. And as I read this, realize I'm giving you from the pulpit of the church the first sermon from Paul ever recorded. You are hearing Paul's sermon this morning. 
I think that's the coolest thing. We're allowing Paul to preach the sermon this morning. All right? Let me read this. Men of Israel and you Gentiles who fear the Lord, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our ancestors and made the people great during their stay as foreigners in the country of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. After he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave his people their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, he gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave him Saul, son of Kish, a man from the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing him, God raised up David, their king. He testified about him. I have found David, the son of Jesse, to be a man after my heart, who will accomplish everything I want him to do. From the descendants of this man, God brought a, to Israel a Savior, Jesus, just as he promised. Before Jesus arrived, John had proclaimed a baptism for repentance to all the people of Israel. But while John was completing his mission, he said repeatedly, What do you think I am? I am not he. But look, one is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the sandals on his feet. Brothers, descendants of Abraham's family, and those Gentiles among you who fear, the God, fear God, the message of this salvation has been sent to us. For the people who live in Jerusalem and their rulers did not recognize him, and they fulfilled the sayings of the prophets that are read every Sabbath by condemning him. Though they found no basis for a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. But then, uh, excuse me, when they had accomplished everything that was written about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had accompanied him from Galilee to Jerusalem. These are now his witnesses to the people. And we proclaim to you the good news about the promise of our ancestors, that this promise God has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have fathered you. But regarding the fact that he has raised Jesus from the dead, never again to be in the state of decay, God has spoken, um, God has spoken in this way. I will give the holy and trustworthy promises of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not permit your holy one to experience decay. For David, after he had served God's purposes in his own generation, died, was buried with his ancestors, and experienced decay. But the one whom God raised up did not experience decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that though this one forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by this one, by this one everyone who believes is justified from everything, everything from which the law of Moses could not justify you, watch out then that what is spoken about by the prophets does not happen to you. Look, you scoffers, be amazed and perished, for I am doing a work in your days, a work you would never believe even if someone tells you. Let me ask you all this. Normally, Pete asks you at some point in the sermon to share testimony of a time during the week that you've talked about Jesus with someone. I'm not going to do that this morning. Let me ask you this, though. What is a way to share Christ with someone? And I actually want to know. Does anyone have any methods, techniques, way that you've done it before? Okay, you went straight to it. Okay, fantastic. So one way to do this is creation to Christ. What is creation to Christ? Yeah, it's, it's telling the story for someone really quickly 
from the time God created to all of Abraham, Israel, the story there, the, the prophets, the kings, everything like that, all the way down to what happened when Christ came. What Paul does, instead of creation to Christ here, is pretty much the same thing, but he does Abraham to Christ. He starts with Abraham. He starts with Israel. He doesn't have to go all the way back to creation. But Paul gives us this example of how to share Jesus with people. And by the way, we see it in other places in the New Testament. Acts chapter 3, we saw Peter's sermon. He does something similar where he uses the prophets in the Old Testament. Acts chapter 7, Stephen does something similar as well. He starts with the Old Testament story and, and brings that all the way down and shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of all. So we have good precedent. If you want to know how to share Jesus with someone, look to Paul. Walk people through the story of God and history all the way down to Christ. Now, this isn't to say that Paul always did it that way. Uh, we know in another chapter in Acts, Acts 15, that when Paul stands before the Areopagus, he's there and he doesn't point to anything in the Old Testament because the, the pagans don't know anything about Old Testament history, so that wouldn't have helped. Uh, instead, he points to their you know, pagan religion and uses that as a springboard to talk about Jesus. And so my point this morning is that if we're going to share Jesus like Paul did, if we're going to share Jesus with the precedent set for us in the New Testament, we can use both. Use those tools in your toolbox. Have those ready. Be ready to talk about culture and how culture points us to Jesus. Be ready to talk about the history of the world and how that history points us to Jesus. Have some of these tools in your toolbox like Paul did here in uh, Acts chapter 13. But look at how this particular sermon has a specific emphasis. He's emphasizing how God acts in history 16 times. 16 declarations of what God does in history. Did y'all catch that? God chooses Israel. God made the people great in Egypt. God led them out of Egypt. God put up with them in the wilderness. God destroyed the pagan nations to give them a land. God gave them the judges. God gave them a king and removed Saul and then gave them David. Then God sends a savior. God provides a witness in the form of John the Baptist. And even in the death and resurrection of Christ, this was done because of God's salvation plan. Who is the star of the show in history? God. God is doing the movement. When we talk about uh, what happens when someone gets saved, we often talk about how it changes your mindset, you know? Uh, it makes you, the New Testament language is, a new creature in Christ. You become a new man. When you get saved, when you get saved, it it reorients and changes what's called your worldview, the view through which you look at the world. Your value system, your framework for priorities, the way that you um, look at your life and other people's lives and how your life fits within the greater whole and how you parent, all of that is rearranged so that when you get saved, you really truly become a new creature. I mean, it changes everything. It changes everything in how you think, right? Amen? One of the ways that you're changed is in how you look at history. You look at history completely different. 
It is no longer that mankind is just wandering about in human existence, aimlessly wandering. You know, we're not bound to evolution. We're not, this isn't a happenstance, an accident. There is a definitive movement and structure and point to history. It's going somewhere. History is taking us somewhere because God is moving human history to a specific point of his choosing. It changes how we think of history. There is an intentional movement. We don't, you know, we're not here by accident. We're not in the moral vacuum of evolution, but rather find ourselves in a specific and intentional moment in the narrative of God's story. There is no accident. And by the way, <laughs> um, let, let me say something for us millennials in the room. History doesn't revolve around you. Let that sink in a little bit. Because we know that, right? Like we, we agree with that, but sometimes we live like it. History does not revolve around our momentary existence. No, 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 no. Paul says history revolves around the coming of Jesus. The Jews at this point have been prepared all the way from creation, all the way to Christ, prepared all along. God is acting and moving, pointing to the time when a Messiah will come. Jesus had come. He was right there in their midst, right? And now we look back to the coming of Jesus. He's already come, and he's going to come again. History revolves around God's movement to bring about the Messiah's coming. It is all about him. It is truly the case that Jesus is the crescendo, the zenith, the climax, the culmination, the apex of history. Jesus fulfills the covenants. Jesus fulfills Abraham's promises, David's promises. All the promises in the Old Testament come to their fulfillment in Christ. Everything is pointing to him. And by the way, every st everything still points to him. All of human history, it changes the way we view it. When we, when we learn about history and uh, high school history class, right? Uh, the facts, maybe they've gotten right and maybe they've gotten wrong, but at the end of the day, they missed the biggest piece of all of history. And that is all of it is about Jesus. Everything points to him. Now we find in verse 40 through 41, look at this warning. This is very interesting. Uh, Paul refers back to Habakkuk. And in Habakkuk, this prophet had basically said, you know, when, when people refuse to hear God's revelation, what comes is judgment. That's what Habakkuk had said back in the Old Testament. When people refuse to hear God's revelation, the, the uh, consequence of that is judgment. And so he, Paul says, that's still true. When you you know, refuse to hear God's revelation, you're going to receive judgment. When you refuse to hear the ultimate revelation of God, that is Christ, the Word become flesh, the incarnate God, truly the greatest of all revelation, Jesus was right there in their midst. And here we find Paul says, if you refuse God's revelation, if you refuse Christ, the principle still holds. Ultimate refusal means ultimate judgment. Interesting. Interesting. Definitely not a feel-good sermon. And so, 
Let's look at the results of this sermon this morning. Turn with me to 42, verse 42 right there. As Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people were urging them to speak about these things on the next Sabbath. When the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who was speaking with them and were persuaded them, persuading them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city assembled together to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict what Paul was saying by reviling him. Both Paul and Barnabas replied courageously, It was necessary to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it, and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We are turning to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have appointed you to be a light for the Gentiles, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began to rejoice and praise the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed for eternal life believed. So the word of the Lord was spreading through the entire region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high social standing and the prominent men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, standing uh, and threw them out of their uh, region. So after they shook the dust off their feet, in protest against them, they went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting that some of these people reacted positively to Paul's message. In fact, Paul was such a good preacher and the Holy Spirit was moving in such a powerful way, he stands in the synagogue, he gives his sermon, and then they ask him to stay around for a week and come back next week at the synagogue to do it again. And the entire city shows up. That's pretty incredible. There was so much initial interest, the entire city showed up. That's what we find. Now, Paul and Barnabas had a very interesting reaction to this. I'm going to use an important word this morning. Their response was, you know what, your initial interest in the gospel, your initial positive reaction, that's not good enough. It's not good enough that you, that you want to hear a little bit more. You've got to have, you ready for the word? Perseverance. You've got to continue in the grace of God. You've got to continue to abide in Christ. You've got to continue to believe in him. You cannot walk away from the faith. This can't be just a a quick sort of cursory and nominal um, turn to Jesus. No, 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 no. Turning to Jesus means you continue in faith in Jesus. Now, I mean, be clear about this. I'm not saying that you're saved by something that you do. We don't believe that. We believe that you're saved by grace through faith. It is all in what Christ has done. Jesus did the work on the cross. But, but, If someone has an initial positive response to the gospel and then 10 months later they're out of the church and want to have nothing to do with Jesus, that reveals that they were never saved to start with. The mark of the believer is that they persevere in the faith. It proves that you are saved. It demonstrates that you are in Christ. 
And by the way, Jesus sustains us. Jesus is the one that does the work. He always empowers us. And, you know, even when we're weak, we're, we're too weak to be saved to start with, and we're too weak to be persevering in the faith. We're too weak to get to heaven on our own. We're too weak to do the good works that Jesus talks about in the New Testament. We're too weak on our own. Jesus does the work and does the empowering. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit. That's absolutely true. But nevertheless, how do you know that you're saved? Well, someone who is saved perseveres in faith. He does not walk away from it. He does not turn his back from it. He is committed for his entire life. That's how you know that someone is saved. And so Paul and Barnabas are saying that here. Look, great, positive response at first. Cool, I'm glad that you're intellectually uh, interested in what I had to say. But I'm telling you, you've got to continue in the grace of God. You've got to continue to be a follower of Christ. You've got to persevere in this thing. You've got to keep pushing forward. Don't stop. Keep going perseverance. And then he says to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. The Jews had responded, as they often do, uh, along racial lines. I don't know if racism is clearly a problem still today in the church, still today in the synagogue, still today all over the place. Racism is clearly a problem. It's no different than it was back then. And maybe it's understandable, I guess, because if you're a Jew and you've had thousands of years of the Gentiles persecuting you and oppressing you and keeping your entire nation down and enslaving you, maybe you wouldn't like the idea of saying, you know what, I don't like this guy coming in here and saying that the Gentiles have the same offer of salvation as we do. We're God's people after all. I don't like that this is being offered to other people. It's like Jonah. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh because he didn't like the idea that the Ninevites could be saved. They, you know, the Ninevites had, were, were terrible um, in their treatment of the Jews in general. They were a really brutal nation. And so Jonah's racial, um, racial, basically racism at that point, his racism didn't want him to go to Nineveh to preach because what if they, what if they responded positively? And so these same Jews have that attitude of, why should the Gentiles get to be saved? And so they... Um, basically pull their political power and get Paul and Barnabas kicked out of the city. And by the way, they weren't hurt by it. They said, well, we're still rejoicing in the Lord. It's still a lot of joy for us. So to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles is what we see. Let me ask you all a question this morning. How could the Jews be so close yet so far? Never known anybody like that? I mean, Paul the Apostle wrote more books than anybody else in the New Testament, stood before them giving his longest recorded sermon. And these Jews say, no, we don't want it. All the data is in front of them. They have all the evidence whether that be through Scripture, through the prophecies, or from nature. Everything is pointing to Christ being the Messiah. It's not a matter of whether or not this is persuasive. They just don't like it. How is it that they can be so close, yet so far? We can still do that. In fact, that happens a lot. The truth of the matter is, rejection of the gospel is very, 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 very ugly. It reveals something about our heart. Rejection of the gospel shows just how sinful we are. Because we can say that people's experiences and people's um, 
you know, how they were brought up and their culture and all these kind of things play into how they respond to something, right? Like that, that shapes how we respond to things. But at the end of the day, all of those things really reduce down to a sinful heart, a sin nature. It becomes an, a barrier, an obstacle, a blinder that keeps us from seeing the truth. The human heart rejects the things of God. This is exactly, by the way, why we can say that broad is the path that leads to destruction, and many will find it. Narrow is the path that leads to eternal life, and few will find it. The vast majority of people allow this human rejection of the gospel, allow the sin nature that's inside them, allow these blinders, and not because the data's not there, not because it's not persuasive, not because they don't have evidence, not because the gospel isn't clear, not because they can't understand, it's because they won't understand. They willfully choose to reject God's revelation. Make no mistake about it. We don't, there, there's this misperception out there that, that people that have never known about God are you know, punished because they haven't heard the gospel. And people that uh, they, don't, they, just, they just don't have the information to know about God or to follow God. At the end of the day, people go to hell because they willfully reject that information because of, of sin nature, because of the human heart, because it's so corrupted. And we see that with the Jews. The apostle Paul stands before them, made a persuasive case. All the stuff is there. Here's the evidence. They don't come back and debate him. They don't come back and say, well, actually, I think you misinterpreted this. Or actually, I have a really good argument to show you why Jesus is not the Messiah. No, no, no. None of that. That's not what's going on here. They come back and say, well, we don't like the outcome. We don't like that this would provide salvation to these Gentiles. And by the way, we're kicking you out of the city and we reject you. It reveals something about the human heart. Sin's effect becomes a blinder. And so, what do they do? They shake the dust off their sandals. You guys have heard that before? Shake the dust off your shoes and keep rolling? Um, I bet you didn't know this. There's a background to it. Before uh, the apostles did this, the Jews, when they came into Jerusalem after being in a foreign land, they would shake the dust off their sandals because they didn't want any of the Gentile dirt the unholy dirt, to come into Jerusalem. Because that was pagan dirt, you see. Pagan dirt shouldn't come into Jewish uh, dirt. Jewish dirt is much more holy. So what are the apostles saying? You guys, you Jews, who reject Christ, reject God's revelation, reject everything that the Old Testament was talking about, you're no better than the pagans. You're no better than the very people that you say you hate. You've rejected God all the same. It's very interesting. So let me recap for us this morning. What have we learned from Paul and Barnabas? If you're taking notes, here, here are the six things. Maybe just jot these down. You'll probably hear them in community group uh, this week. We learned that we must not forsake the preaching of the gospel. Plain and simple. We must not forsake the preaching of the gospel. Even when it's dangerous, even when it requires a dangerous, epic journey to do it, we must not forsake the preaching of the gospel. We've learned that our priorities must be kingdom-centered. We, we don't look for glory. I'll, I'll tell you this, y'all. 
I'm on the preaching circuit, right? I see a lot of preachers. I come and go to a lot of churches to do preaching. There are a lot of preachers that don't get this. There are a lot of people that don't understand that it's not about building your platform so that you can sell a bunch of books. It, it's, it's about what's important to the kingdom. Whatever is good for the kingdom is what we're after. Number three, there are a variety of ways to witness about Jesus, but a good way is creation to Christ. Paul does it a, a bunch of different ways in the book of Acts, but we have good reason to see in this passage to do exactly what you've been trained to do here at Mission Community, and that is to talk about God's movement throughout history and how that culminates in the coming of Jesus. You, you've, been, you've been taught something that's very biblical in doing that. Number four, refusal to hear the gospel will always lead to judgment. Refusal to hear, refusal to believe in the revelation of God, that is the gospel, will always lead to judgment. And that's a scary thing. It should be a scary thing. We care about human suffering. That's exactly why we go and preach, because that refusal leads to eternal damnation, and we recognize that that's the worst of all possible things. Worse than any other disease, worse than any other pain, worse than any other frustration, whatever that ails people, whatever suffering we see in the world, nothing is worse than eternal damnation. And that comes from rejecting God's revelation. Number five, human rejection of the gospel, rejecting the gospel, reveals how ugly the human heart is left to itself. I mean, there's no sugarcoating that. Um, we, we can scream and shout and, and argue and bring all the evidence to bear. We can go to our friends and family members and plead with them like Ronald Reagan did while his father-in-law was on his deathbed. We can do whatever. I mean, it was a really great argument, I, I thought, when you read that letter. I mean, he was really persuasive. He gave a lot of information. Um, you can do that all day long, but sometimes... Nothing you do is good enough because the human heart is just wicked above all things. We've got to remember that. We've got to remember that. Jesus has to do a supernatural work to save anyone. And then number six, we work out our salvation. We prove our salvation by persevering in the faith. We must continue in Christ, as Paul has explained. We must abide in him. We must not turn our back on the gospel we've received. We must continue. That, that is how we prove that we are believers. That's how we work this out. So this morning, I want to offer you the opportunity. I don't know what God has given to you. I've, I've desired to give more of a, um, a, t a time of teaching rather than preaching this morning. Um, so I don't know what you've learned. I don't know what you've picked up along the way. Uh, if God is moving in your mind and heart in some way, the altar is always, always open, even if you just want to come and take a knee and do business with him or maybe just bow your head right there at your seat and do business with him, whatever that means. Uh, when I pray in a second, uh, Sean will come and uh, lead us in a, a time of um, response. Um, but whatever, whatever you've heard this morning, I pray that we take this and we, we go out this week so that when Pete comes back next week, that we have a billion stories to talk about how we've acted like Paul in sharing Christ with other people. Take this and go and do likewise. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it speaks into our lives. Always, I pray that we never, ever, 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 ever take it for granted. Help us to never reject something that you have told us because we know that the consequences are not good and not favorable even for us as believers. We ask, Lord, this morning that you would move, that you would do what you have this morning. Lord, we recognize that we are not an accident in this place. It is not an accident that we find ourselves on a Sunday morning Uh, this day, this hour, and this place together as one family of believers, it is not an accident that you are moving the way that you're moving, that you have assigned us a task with our lives to be a part of your mission like you did with Paul and Barnabas. Lord, use us to preach the gospel to see it go to the other ends of the earth. Uh, Whatever that means, whether in Chester or Lynchburg or Africa or wherever, Lord, I pray that you would use us to do that. Help us to learn these lessons. Help us to keep them in mind. Help us to move intentionally, to preach intentionally, to speak intentionally like Paul did. Help us to to use his good example as a model for how we can go and do likewise. We love you, Lord. I pray that if there's anybody in this place this morning, um, I pray if there's anybody in this place this morning, that your spirit would move on them If they are not saved, your spirit would move on them, that they would come forward because they need to know you. Because the the consequences of that is the worst form of human suffering. Let's get that right first. Let's treat the disease first, Lord. And then we'll deal with the symptoms. But I pray this morning if there's anybody in this place that does not know you. Statistically, it's it's likely if anybody in this place does not know you, that you would move on them right now. The Holy Spirit would move on them right now. They would come forward and get right. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.